you are struggling at work. You are nervous. Should you ask for help? Or buy some time to work it out. Things will be better in time for next week. Or maybe they won't. You will be able to work it out. And maybe you won't. It'll be the same next week. And the next week. And then what happens? It just all, it's like a stack of cars. Engineers and project managers. Generally like to be optimistic. Everything's fine. I don't need any help, you know. It'll be, it'll be right in the night sort of thing. No, no, if you think it's going wrong, if you've got an inkling of it's going wrong, put your hand up, sort it out. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we have guests from Costain, the University of Edinburgh, and the Association for Project Management to talk about something that is often overlooked, but the effects of which are plastered across the news whenever a major infrastructure project is discussed. Project reviews. Because really, although it may seem small in the scheme of a multi-billion dollar mega project, the impact of unsuccessful or ineffective project reviews can cascade through the entire scheme. It can happen to any project, big or small. So it pays to get this bit right. In this episode, we will look at some of the pitfalls encountered by projects and companies, how to avoid them, and how to correct them if things are going awry. But before we look at well-run projects, good leadership, and learn about how to instill a positive culture, let's explore what can go wrong. What are some of the end effects of a poorly run project? For that, here is Sue Kershaw, who we heard earlier. Sue is the president of the Association for Project Management and MD for Transportation at Costain. Sue did a review of why projects go wrong. And after several days, there was a big, long list, which she shrank down to two very basic things. One, get proper design management on it. Don't allow, on any project, small or big, the design to run away with you. Because if the design runs away with you, the cost will just go through the roof and you've lost control of your ultimate goal. And number two, which is a bit of a sister issue. Make sure your estimators know what they're estimating. And that sounds obvious, but some of them don't. And make sure their estimates are checked and then checked and then checked and then checked again. Because otherwise, it's cost is like compound interest. You start adding contingency on contingency on contingency and before you know it you've got a project that's 10 times over its original design sum. So two simple things, proper design management and really rigorous cost estimate and that they are basics. These are the two main historical issues but Sue says that she has another problem for us, one that seems to have sprung up in the last decade or so and it's a complaint that is often voiced by experienced engineers. But I think what's happened in the last 10 years is we've lost touch of basics because people don't check each other in their design office or in estimator's office. They just send it straight out on the computer. I used to have to physically sign drawings when I was doing my designs and saying, you know, Sue Kershaw in ink says this is okay. That really makes you think about something. And then secondly, the complexity of these projects means that it's really easy to hide problems and not solve them. You've got buckets you can put things in because they're too difficult and, and carry on. And you think you're working really hard, but you're all peddling away in opposite directions. And at that moment, if you have a failure of leadership, things can start to escalate. 
Here is Gordon Masterton. I'm Chair of Future Infrastructure at the University of Edinburgh, which is not my long-term career. I was a practising consulting civil engineer uh, in my first career until I retired, involved with uh, major projects uh, worldwide, including a couple of years in in the Far East, and uh, latterly involved with major programme oversight and assurance, uh, for instance, in the the early days of, of Crossrail. I was fortunate enough in in my career to be involved with the Institution of Civil Engineers and 15 years ago now I served uh, a very enjoyable year travelling the the world to represent the voice of civil engineers uh, as president of the Institution of Civil Engineers. Gordon has been interested in teaching people about good leadership for a long time. For him, best practice is about distilling hard-earned experience and passing it on to the next generation. And one of his achievements when he was president of the ICE was to create the President's Apprentice Scheme, now called Future Leaders. This programme placed young engineers close to the president with influence and allowed learning to go in both directions. Gordon is still interested in making sure engineering guidance is properly applied. And there is one setting in which this is at its most important. Project reviews are absolutely critical to delivering successful programmes. We have the the opportunity there in a a good project review to identify early warnings of of risks emerging into issues, for example. It's an opportunity to share best practice amongst the teams in in the room, uh, represented in the room. It's an opportunity to share lessons learned, both positive and negative. And it's uh, an opportunity also for team leaders to ask the wider community in the review, especially senior management, for for help to get them through current areas of, of difficulty. They need to be brought in, included and helped. It's incredibly valuable, essential as, as an opportunity for human interaction to, to really get under the skin of the issues that, that might be revealed by the numbers that, that you would also need to have in a, in a good project review. Project controls, of course, they, they're, they're great at churning out data, but it's also important to realise that projects are about people too. And, and, a, and a really good review takes, takes the numbers as, as fact and doesn't debate them and concentrates on, on the people issues to resolve what look like emerging challenges and to set out a series of actions to address them. If a positive environment isn't created, you run the risk of your people feeling like they can't be honest and open about issues arising. If we don't have, have really good uh, project reviews, the converse uh, applies and uh, we, we have issues that, that fester uh, and are not revealed and not shared uh, with the wider community and not elevated to successive levels of senior management. And the worst thing that, that can happen out of a, a, a poorly structured uh, or a, a poorly managed project review is that problems, even the early warnings of problems, are bottled up and simply not shared. Perhaps because of the, the, the fear of, of being ridiculed or belittled by the wrong behaviours in the project review uh, teams that are assembling. Again, it all comes back to people. The critical thing is recognising that the reviews are 
are for people and about people uh, because people make the project successful. The numbers are important. You, you have to be able to rely on the numbers, but it's the mindset of those that are in the room and it's their uh, attitude to each other. So respect for people, I think, is the most important aspect of a successful project review. Everyone should be utterly comfortable to, to share the views in the knowledge they'll be received in the spirit of, well, that's really helpful because it informs the true state of where we are right now in, in the project. And we can all work together and team together to, to help you solve that particular issue in your element of the, of the programme. So if you want to take action and improve the way your project functions, a careful awareness of people is vital. Understanding the way they behave and how they react to things is so important. I started my career many years ago as a police officer. This is Claire Fryer, Costain's Director of Behavioural Management. In that background there, pinpointing was really a key skill that I carried through into my current role as I had to be able to precisely describe what a person said or did and had to be able to get the facts. I also had to be able to ask questions and listen carefully to find out what was actually happening during an incident and, for example, find out what happened immediately before behaviour occurred, as we would now say what we call an antecedent, and to be able to pinpoint the exact behaviour and what followed the behaviour. I had to be able to listen to people and really find out the facts from multiple sources and present information with recommendations and supporting evidence. Claire works as a consultant on the human side of getting a project culture and project reviews right, making sure that people feel valued and that they are led effectively. So she spends a lot of time thinking about what makes a good leader. The good and the great leaders are extremely self-aware. They are aware of the environments they create and they create environments of trust, I'd say. They really do do what they say they're going to do. They've got the ability to set really clear expectations with the teams. There's no ambiguity and the purpose of that team is also clear. They have an ability also to actively ask if people need support or help. They take time to, to work with the teams to build those relationships, to build that trust. Also making time for themselves, to spare some time to take in the bigger picture. I think another key thing is they can create white space in their own diaries for time to have strategic thinking, planning time, so they're not constantly on that churn and on that wheel. They've, they've created a time for themselves. Great ones I've seen are able to acknowledge performance improvement and importantly, I think, give credit where credit's due. They're, they're able to provide positive and constructive feedback and, and know that balance. You can understand what they say and do and the language they use has a real impact on those they lead. And most importantly, people must not be afraid of seeming not to know something. Asking questions is vital. A great one is they can create an environment where people can raise questions and they encourage the truth, even if it results in difficult conversations. This seems straightforward enough. Have an open environment, everyone free to express problems, people unafraid to face the problems of the business. But how can you tell when it's all going wrong? I asked Claire about some of the normal, undesired behaviours that she encounters when helping clients improve their project culture. And a consistent one is I found after a meeting when everyone's agreed what steps will be taken and actions are recorded, people may meet in the kitchen area, pass each other in the corridor or the car park and start to make 
potentially detrimental remarks about the idea, the chair art, the actions, the future. Yet in the meeting, they've totally agreed and supported the plan. Claire explains that behaviour, desired or undesired, is usually present because of reinforcement. Reinforcement from somewhere and may require private meetings to address. Other problems that might occur range from leaving action items open, failing to return calls, sending emails late at night, promising to do something and then doing something else instead, missing deadlines, inaccurate reporting. All these are problem indicators, but for an actual intervention where a behaviour specialist would assess the project review, I'd cover basics such as does it start on time, finish on time, are all agenda items covered? This really is a baseline and often an indicator of the prevailing culture. I then go deeper, measuring the frequency of the person speaking, the responses of those being spoken to, the language used, the visual clues, right down to micro-muscle movement. Micro-muscle movement as a concept was too good to ignore. It's something behavioural specialists always take into account when they sit in on a meeting. I love this, and um, when you're observing a person, the brain, it can take about a fifth of a second to tell the face to not make any movement. So it's too slow. So maybe the, um, the corners of the mouth twitching, the eye movement, a, a little facial movement because of all the muscles in the face. You can often just observe visually what's occurring and notice when triggers happen and when um, micro-muscle movement occurs. But it's really important to calibrate because just because somebody, you know, we talk about behavioural observations, just because somebody touches the nose twice, it doesn't mean anything particular, um, but it may be just a point to, to watch for what triggers that. It may just be that they've got an itch. Here is where you need to be careful. And it's important to take time to understand the people in the room, what Claire calls calibrating herself to get used to the various ticks. So that's people. But there is one other side of the coin for understanding a good project review. Here's Gordon again. The complementary aspect of, of respect for people is respect for numbers. And uh, there, are, there are, behind every major project, there, there are teams producing the project controls data, ideally independently from the, the line management of the, of the project, so that this is an independent view based on the data input by the project teams. And the outputs, therefore, should not be a matter for challenge. Sometimes those outputs are, and too much time is taken in a project review debating the accuracy of the numbers. That shouldn't even be a topic of conversation in a well-set-up and a well-structured project environment. So the numbers should be accepted as the numbers. And if there are if there are any doubts in a particular project manager's view on the accuracy, then it's probably down to that project for not putting in the right data into right input into the data uh, abstraction that project controls teams are doing. So accept the numbers as numbers, use them meaningfully, and move on beyond the the. Uh, the issue of debating whether whether or not they are absolutely accurate uh, or not just that that's another important aspect of it and the combination of the numbers as numbers and then the people issues uh, overlying interacting with those to respond to the numbers and to improve 
the anticipated performance for the, at the next review it should be the focus of, of a you know a successful project review. Here is Pete Mill, Costain's discipline lead for portfolio, program and project management consultancy. He works within the defence sector, which takes an even more rigorous approach to management than civils might be used to. He is also a man who respects the numbers. In order to be able to make safe decisions, then they need two key dimensions, I think, um, to be to be in good order. The first is around the information that you need to be able to make good decisions. So at the review, you know, your project managers, your project directors need confidence that uh, the information that they're uh, looking at is validated, is correct. Trustworthy and of high quality. And in programme reviews, that sort of information comes from a range of data sources and it covers things like your schedule, your budgets, your costs, your forecasts against all those, your earned value, status on deliverable, resource position, risk position, etc. And what happens if the underpinning data quality isn't sufficiently robust, then you find that it gets called into question. And that doesn't have to happen too often before, before you've lost it altogether. Once in this position, it can become a knee-jerk reaction to question the data rather than engage with a problem. The second is around the culture and the environment, which is absolutely shaped by the project leadership. You know, for example, how are project problems treated? You know, how do you face um, people coming with, with issues that things are not going so well? Is the review data-driven? So does the project leader respect the data? And Pete talks about something he calls a watermelon effect. And both these things, both these, this data issue and the behaviour issue both lead to what we call this watermelon effect, where projects or work packages or data can be presented as you know, nice green, you know, everything's fine on the outside. But once you cut into them and look a little bit deeper, you find that actually there's a very, very dangerous red core, you know, that the green can mask real problems because they're not being surfaced either through data issues or through um, behavioural issues. So what would he advise for managers wanting to fix their project review process? You should work backwards from the outcomes you want to achieve in the review. So what decisions need to be made? What actions need to be taken? And based on, based on those factors, you can then figure out what information is needed to be able to make those decisions or drive those actions. And that work back from that information presented to what's the source data that drives that information and avoid death by PowerPoint. Too many slides can bury the vital information. Too often we see, we see review packs of 130 sheets and you've either got two hours to get through that, in which case you only get through the first 10 pages, or you spend two and a half days death by PowerPoint you know, going through every single page. And actually there's, there's often a, a real core set of review sheets of review information that's, that is required and the rest of it is really just, just backup. The amount of effort it takes people in project teams to produce that backup information is, uh, is astonishing and it's quite dispiriting. And leaders don't always have to acquiesce to their team. Good leadership can be knowing when not to indulge them, especially if the project will suffer. One of the other things that we, I guess, have seen being really successful is when leaders absolutely refuse to tolerate non-standard packs or non-standard data sources. So if 
um, if a project manager or a work package manager comes manager comes in and says, well, I know you've got your standard pack, but um, actually I've added these slides and taken that one out. You know, that you very quickly diverge and you, you don't get consistency if you're in that position. And even worse, if the if the package manager comes in and says, actually, I've got a different data source. I don't believe you know, that stuff you've got there. We don't believe that. But actually, we've got a better view. We've corrected it. Yeah, that that gets you get into a real mess very very quickly in that the no one knows what the what the single source of the truth is. So it's it's really good practice just to be just to focus on a single source of the truth. But conversely, just because the project uses a flashy tool set does not mean that putting garbage in puts gospel out. There is no substitute for good data. But in general, to bring about a change in culture or a change in practice, sometimes there can be inertia or even resistance to deal with. To deal with this, Pete recommends selecting what he calls change champions. He recalls the first time he tried it. So rather than a change team, who can sometimes be seen as an ivory tower or a bit of us and them, you know, if we can get their peers to promote the change, and to help them with the change, then that can be extremely powerful. So on this specific program, we identified up to, I think it was 20, and we call them champions, 20 change champions, who were basically recruited from within the ranks of the, the population that was going to receive the change. You know, these were experienced project managers. They were well-respected in the business. They were supportive of what we were trying to do, but they also understood the issues around receiving the change and implementing the change. And we found that that was really quite powerful because they were, as I said, they were recognised, they were, they, they were part of the teams that were going to be receiving the change. And here is Gordon again, taking a historical view on the industry's reaction to change. It's usually always the hearts and minds, the true belief that it is uh, going to be beneficial, that changes um, management practices rather than the mechanistic, oh, here's another, here's another box that we've got to tick somehow and, and go through the motions, if you like, rather than really embracing the, the principle that it's, it's, it's going to be beneficial. He compares it to the realisation decades ago that industry was operating dangerously. It's a bit like safety in the, the early days where we, you know, we made great progress by introducing more legislation into the industry, Health and Safety at Work Act, the Health and Safety at Work Act of 1974, which... That developed into also other you know, subsidiary acts that, that, that related to the safe operating of machinery, etc. And that, that took us on a progressively improving trajectory. So it needs to be with, with management culture as well. Uh, you, can, you can write procedures and you can set rules and regulations, but and, until you get really into the, the culture and the belief sets of the organisations, you're not going to make meaningful changes beyond a certain point. So that's my experience. And Gordon wants us all to recognise that we have a part to play. I think it's understanding that uh, no matter where you are in a project, whether you're the chief executive, uh, chief financial officer, uh, programme director, 
or, or managing a team as a subset of one of the projects within the programme. Wherever you are, you have the opportunity to make a, a positive difference if your behaviour is, is, is right. And the behaviour between you and your team members uh, needs to be respectful. Um, and if you, have, if you have that as your basic yardstick, then that's likely to be reciprocated. And if that, that mutual respect cascades all the way through an organisation right up to the top, then you're well on the way to having a, a, a successful project outcome. He sees the safety record as a good indicator of whether a project is being managed well. I've certainly found in, in my career that those projects that are well organised for safety and think of the issues ahead, uh, of, think of the risks, sorry, ahead of them becoming issues and incidents are the ones that are most likely to succeed uh, financially and in terms of schedule compliance as well. So get safety right and, and the way to get that right is to have the right mindset and behaviour and attitude of respect for everybody uh, that you interact with. That will feed through progressively like a, you know, by osmosis almost in, into the other areas that also demand respect across the interfaces when discussing schedule, when discussing uh, quality, when discussing the cost performance. There is, there is no space for abuse, there is no space for uh, belittling uh, the carriers of, of bad news uh, and there, there should be no, no space for anything that is, is not respectful of inclusivity and diversity in the organisation. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson, and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervisor is John Young, and our own healthy culture is Rory Harris. This episode was made in partnership with Costain. Special thanks to the University of Edinburgh and the Association for Project Management. For more information on how to instill good leadership qualities and run a successful project, listeners can visit Costain's website or find a link in the show notes to a paper produced by Costain on improving major project performance through establishing the right culture and leadership behaviour. Interested in further training for your team? The University of Edinburgh offers an MSc course on leading major programmes. Due to begin in 2021, it takes a truly multidisciplinary approach to delivering a project successfully, with modules ranging from the technical to the genuinely philosophical. Again, please check the show notes for more information. Thanks for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, or share us on Twitter and LinkedIn. <laughs>